0: Thanks, Kenny. So, yeah, as Pastor Kenny already said, I'm finishing up my degree at Heritage. Uh, There was some confusion there because I have no idea what year I'm technically in right now. Classes are a mess. So, yeah. Um, And I'm Pastor Matt's fourth youngest brother, or second youngest brother, four under him. And, yeah, I just got married, And this last weekend, my wife Alicia and I were at her grandma's house uh, just eating dinner and while we're eating, there's this loud beep. And I'm kind of a little confused as to what that single loud beep was. A few minutes later, it happened again. And again, a few more minutes later, eventually, grandma tells us that it's a fire alarm. And there's not a fire, but the batteries are low. when she told me that, I was like, oh, okay, Like, there's relief, I, I'm relieved that it's just low batteries, but something has to be done about it, right? You can't just say, oh yeah, the batteries are low in the fire alarm, whatever, no big deal, because you have to change them before they die, because if they die, you then run into a dangerous problem where you, you don't actively do things and Ultimately, it could lead to a life-and-death situation with no warning. And it will become a safety issue in your life. And a fire alarm without working batteries is a major issue in your life. You need that working. And we're going to see in our passage today about how in the Christian life, if you live your life without repentance, without forgiveness, and without rebuke, that's a major problem in the Christian's life. And ultimately, it could lead to a situation of life and death if you do not do these things in your life. So please open your Bibles up with me to Luke chapter 17. And in a moment, we will be reading verses 1 through 4 together. But before we do that, let's open up in a word of prayer and ask God to bless the morning for us. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have written so that we may read for ourselves what your commands are and for what you want us to learn from your word itself. I pray that uh, you will reveal to us from your word what you would like us to take away this morning, what you would like us to learn, and that all the words that I speak will be spoken by you through me. And God, I pray that if I say anything that is wrong, that you will put that out of our minds, and we will forget those things quickly, and we will come away remembering what you have to say and what you have to teach us this morning. In your name, amen. So let's read Luke 17, verses 1 and 4 together. And he said to his disciples, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. So I found three things for us to take away this morning from these verses. The first one I found is that temptation is inevitable. It's going to happen. And then you see that in verse 1. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. And the Greek word here for sure is enendectos. And this word literally translated means that it is impossible that it will not happen. It's an absolute, it is impossible, it will not happen. Another way of translating it could be that it is improper for it not to happen. So Jesus is saying here that sins are all but guaranteed for the believer, or temptations to sin are all but guaranteed for the believer. You are going to run into these in your life. But just because temptation is there, just because that's presented in your life, It does not mean you need to sin when you're presented with this temptation. Jesus takes this to the next level when he continues. Look at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Little ones here is commonly agreed on among scholars to mean believers. It's not just young children, but it could include young children. But it's believers. Personally, I think it would be specifically believers that are younger than you or less mature in the faith than you, that you have influence over. And we'll see later on, we'll see a little one being baptized. And it's a great joy to see that. And that's something that we have to keep in mind that God takes it seriously, our impact on his life, on any other believer's life. We have to be careful not to cause them to stumble, not to present temptation to them. Now, I want you to imagine something with me. You're at the cottage enjoying a nice weekend, and you're there maybe with your family or with your close friends, and you come up with this bright idea. You're like, all right. We're all out here by the water. I want you guys to grab that rope over there in that big rock. Okay, I want you to tie the rope to the big rock, then tie the other end to me. They wouldn't be very good friends if they do that, but imagine with me that they do. They tie it to you, tie it to the big rock. They're having trouble pushing it to the edge of the dock. Eventually, it goes over, and as you can imagine, you would be going fast under with it. There's no way you're fighting that. And it sounds brutal. Scary situation to be in. But Jesus is saying, that's better than what's in store for you if you cause a little one to stumble. How terrifying that seems. It's better. It's the easy way out. When I was younger, there were times where I would disobey my mom. My dad's at work, my mom's at home with the kids, and I disobey her. I Who knows what it was I do? Maybe hit my brother, whatever it might be. I disobey her, and she tells me, all right, go sit on mom and dad's bed until dad gets home. Wait for him to get home. That was the most terrifying punishment, just waiting for my dad to get home. Eventually, their bedroom's right above the garage, so I hear the garage door go up. Dad's home. And what feels like an eternity. I'm waiting for him to come upstairs to talk to me. And I've since found out it was more like maybe five or ten minutes, but it felt like hours. And I'm waiting. The tension is building up. Eventually, he comes in the room. I get my discipline. Um, More often than it probably should have, it was mercy, and he would show me mercy and let me off and just talk to me about it. But the tension build up to it, the lead up to it was so much that I was so terrified I was never going to do that again. The next week I would do it again. But that's beside the point. I would, the tension, the terrifying part of that punishment is scary. But when I actually got the punishment, the discipline came as a relief. Because I knew it could be so much worse. I knew there would be so much more wrath if he treated me the way that I deserve to. And that's a situation here. If you're treated the way you deserve to be, it's so much worse than that stone. It's so much worse than any punishment that my dad's going to give me. And in verse 2, Jesus says it's better. It's better to have that millstone tied around your neck. Now, that millstone he's talking about, it's, they would have multiple different types During that time, there would be a small one you could use in the house where you would grind out the grain in your house just for your house. But the one talked about here is one used in a mill that required a donkey to move it. It was so large, you couldn't just have an average man go in there and move it. You needed a beast, a strong beast, to move it because it was so large and so heavy. And this is not just a random punishment, Jesus just thought up on the spot. He didn't think to himself, oh, what can I think of that could terrify my disciples? What will strike some fear into their hearts? He didn't come up with it on his own. See, during this time, Israel was under Roman rule. And if anything could be said about the Romans, it's that they knew how to kill people. Sounds brutal, but it's true. They had a variety of different death penalties for a variety of different uh, broken laws for different Disobediences, and two of the most brutal that I could find was crucifixion, which I assume everyone knows what that entails, and one less commonly known called poincare. Now, poincare is reserved for one of the worst crimes a man could commit. If someone killed their father, they would be subject to this discipline, and. The father was considered the head of the family. The father was the most important, most valuable person in the family, the provider for the family. And if you killed them, and socially they were the highest ranking member of the family, you would have to sit in jail for who knows how long, but for however long it took them to make a sack, and make a large sack, specifically tailored for you. And then they would put you in the sack when it was ready, and they would also place a snake, which was often a viper, and a dog, which at the time was one of the lowest, dirtiest creatures, a chicken and a monkey would be placed in the sack with you. They would tie it up and then throw you into either the sea or the ocean. And this was a brutal way of handing out the death penalty. And they would assume that the death would be especially brutal because you have all these wild animals with you. And as you're facing imminent death, all of them start panicking. And they're doing everything they can to survive. They'll be biting, they'll be thrashing, everything they can to survive. And it makes your death especially brutal. And if the animals weren't available, they had an alternative option. And that was to tie a large stone around the person's neck. And they would throw the person into the sea as their punishment. So this was seen by the Israelites as an especially barbaric way of death. Throwing you into the sea, sometimes with these dirty animals that in Israel would be considered an insult in and of itself to be in close proximity with. And Jesus is telling them that the highest crime, one of the highest crimes for one of the highest punishments you can do under Roman rule is a relief. That's a better option than if you cause someone to stumble, cause a little one to stumble. We must be careful not to lead a little one astray. God takes this extremely seriously. And he, he's very clear in his words that there is great punishment for you. There is greater than you can imagine for those who lead others, the little ones, astray. So we see that temptation is inevitable, and we have to be careful not to tempt others to sin. The second thing I found in the passage is that rebuke is necessary. Rebuke is necessary in the Christian life. I worked in a grocery store. Well, I still do right now. But in my first week, I was not a very smart 16-year-old. I didn't know very much about working and lifting heavy objects. So I'm lifting these boxes that need to get moved from point A to point B. And my brother who worked there came around the corner, not Matt, different brother, uh, came around the corner and he tells me, stop doing that that way, and I'm, I'm just confused, I'm, what am I doing wrong? And he goes on to tell me that I'm lifting the boxes wrong, I'm lifting it with my back, not my knees, and I'm going to hurt myself. There will be pain involved if I continue the way I'm going. And he tells me then a safe, healthy way to lift the boxes. And if he didn't go on to show me the safe, healthy way, I would have continued the way I was going. I would have ended up hurting myself, And hurting my back and probably would still be suffering from that today. But if he saw me and didn't say anything, what kind of brother is he? If he sees me, he knows in his mind that I'm going to hurt myself. He knows that there's going to be pain. There's going to be a punishment for how I'm doing what I'm doing. He would be a very poor brother if he didn't say something. If he didn't tell me and help me fix my wrong ways. But if he sees me, corrects me, and shows me the way that I should do it, he's a true brother and I would be a fool not to listen to him. And if you see your brother in sin, knowing full well that God is going to judge that sin, that God does not approve of what he's doing, how little do you have to care about your brother not to say something? if you know punishment's coming, if you know he's going to suffer because of what he's doing, why wouldn't you say anything? See, it's important that we say something, but it's important how we say it too. It's important that we say it in love, that we come alongside him and we don't just tell him what he's doing wrong and then leave it at that. We need to rebuke him, but then also point him in the right direction. Lovingly show him the truth. And we see that in verse 3 here. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. But if he repents, forgive him. We must rebuke our brother when he's in sin. But we must do it in love because we are all sinners. We all mess up at different times. We're not the perfect person coming in and fixing our brother because we also are in sin. We have to make sure we remove that log from our own eye first and show them that we truly care for them and love for them because ultimately the ultimate reason why we're doing it is because we love them, because we care for them. And in Canada here, we live in a pretty passive culture, right? Like, I'm sure we've all experienced... Passiveness in Canada. We live in a culture where it's a you do you culture. Someone's doing something, it doesn't matter if you think they're right or wrong. You don't say anything because they're just living their life their way. It's wrong to say anything. You can't fix people, you can't correct people. That's just wrong, right? But the Bible's different. It tells us that we do need to rebuke our brother. We do need to call him out when he's in sin. We can't just tell him, oh yeah, you're fine doing whatever, because We're not fine doing whatever. We're called to live in God's way. We're called to live heeding his commands and not living our own way. And it's interesting, at the beginning of verse 3, Jesus says to pay attention to yourself. And he's looking back to verse 2 there. Because he's saying, Woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourself. He's looking back there. He's telling you, you need to be aware of yourself. He's telling you to be aware of yourself before you start rebuking your brother. He then goes into looking outward after you look inward. After you reflect on yourself and you prevent others from sinning, you then go out and you help your brother who is in sin. And you rebuke your brother who is in sin. And he's saying that we can still look out for the interest of others while focusing on ourselves still. We can focus on ourselves and make sure we are obedient to God, that we are not in sin ourselves at the same time as helping others. So while we're paying attention to ourselves, we should be doing these three things. We should be careful while paying attention to ourselves not to be the one through whom temptation comes. Not to lead others astray. Second thing is, while we pay attention to ourselves, we need to rebuke a brother when he sins. And then while we pay attention to ourselves, we need to forgive a brother who repents. We need to do all three of these. And all of these require a heart check on our part. We can't just do it on our own and go with it, right? We can't do it selfishly. You're not able to rebuke a brother correctly if you're doing it for selfish motives. It's not going to go across well. It won't do any good. It will actually do more harm than good if you're doing it for your own good. Right, you need to do it selflessly for the other person because you love them And you're looking out for the best interest of the whole body of Christ, right? Not just yourself, but others as well. So we see that temptation is inevitable and rebuke is necessary. And the third thing I found is that forgiveness is essential. And I know essential has kind of taken on a new meaning in the last year or so. But I want to remind us of what the definition of essential is. Definition, according to the dictionary, is absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. And the government's definitions of essential seem to change every week. But the true definition is absolutely necessary. And that's what forgiveness is. It's absolutely necessary in our lives. When I was young, actually, let's look at verses 3 and four first. Uh, this is where I get that forgiveness is essential. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If, your brother, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, "I repent," you must forgive him. You need to forgive your brother when he's in sin. Now when I was younger, I would have these brother moments. I'm sure anyone with siblings has an idea of what I'm talking about here where I would do something or say something that would hurt one of my brothers, whether it was my younger brother or one of my older brothers, it would often happen. And every time that he would not retaliate, he would go to mom and complain to mom that Ben hurt me or Ben did whatever. And mom would come, and she would tell me that I have to apologize for what I did. And then after I say, I'm sorry, um, and I probably didn't mean it any of the times. Sorry, mom. (laughs) Um, But I I would say sorry, but then she would turn to, whether it's Nathan or Daniel, and tell them, now you have to forgive Ben and they would say, I forgive you, or they would fight it and then realize there's no point in fighting it and eventually forgive me. But then the tables would be flipped, and one of them would hurt me. I would go complain to Mom. I get the apology, and I didn't want to forgive them. I wanted to receive forgiveness, but I didn't want to give the forgiveness as well. But Mom would tell me that I needed to accept the apology, and I needed to forgive them because only God knows their heart. Because there's no way I can actually know what's going on in their heart. I would insist that I knew they didn't mean it. Probably because I never meant it. But ultimately, I never knew what was actually going on in their heart. And it's the same for us. right? We must forgive. We don't know what's going on in our brother's heart. He might sin against you again and again and again. And we're called to forgive again and again and again because... Only God knows the heart. Only God truly knows what's going on under the surface. And no matter how much we think he might not mean it, no matter how many times he's come back and repented, we're still called to forgive. So you may have noticed in verse 4, Jesus says to number 7, See, that if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And I know for me, if I'm younger and I read that, I'm like, that's great. I know my brother's going to hurt me more than seven times and then I'm free after that. But that's not what Jesus is saying. See, at the time, the Pharisees had this thing where if you had someone sin against you or hurt you, and they repented, you had to forgive them three times. Three times you were obligated to forgive them. After three, you're in control. It's up to you. If you forgive them, great. If not, that's up to you. It's no problem. But Jesus says over and over in his ministry to forgive more than that. Don't stop at three. And here he's not saying to stop at seven. See, he's using seven as a number of perfection and completion. And he uses this over and over throughout his ministry. Seventy times seven. Seven times. And he's not saying this is a specific number. He's saying no matter how many times it happens, you need to forgive unendingly. You cannot stop forgiving them just because they keep doing it. And if you love someone enough, you're willing to forgive anything if that love is strong enough. And Christ calls us to forgive again and again and to love our brothers in the church, to love one another. But some of the hardest times to forgive someone is when we're hurt personally and repeatedly, right? Because it hurts deeply and over and over. It keeps coming back. And if someone has a habit of hurting you, I know for me, it's very hard to forgive them. And I want to wait. I want to withhold the forgiveness and see change first. I want to see their life change. I want to see them stop hurting me first. But Christ calls us to forgive again and again and not wait for them to change because they're going to hurt you again. It doesn't matter. He calls us to forgive them regardless. I love a quote that C.S. Lewis has in his book, The Weight of Glory. And it sums up our responsibility to forgive others quite well. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. Perhaps... Not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life to keep on forgiving. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it Is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There's no hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. I love the first line of the quote there. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. You're not exempt, you're not perfect. None of us are. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. And God has forgiven that again and again. There's no space for us to withhold forgiveness unless we want God to withhold forgiveness from us. And I don't think any of us have that desire. And oftentimes, we do feel like we have a right to withhold forgiveness. We have this right because they hurt us over and over. And we want to witness that actual change. And we feel like it might be our responsibility as a person being apologized to, that they're repenting to, to withhold that and maybe think we're helping them in some way by giving them incentive to actually change. That's not how it works. We're called to forgive freely. We're called to forgive not Because we see change, but because they are repenting of their sin. God will judge the heart. We are not the judge of the heart. No matter how often I know I fall into that trap, how often we feel like we are, we're really not. God's the one who sees the heart and judges the heart of man. And he commands us to forgive others no matter how much they have hurt us. It doesn't matter how much. And if God sees everything, and if God knows everything, and God still has forgiven everything, who are we to stand in the way and say that we're in control of when forgiveness should be handed out? We see so little, we know so little, and yet we try taking that position of God, deciding when people deserve forgiveness. It's wrong. We must forgive as God has forgiven us. So we see that temptation is inevitable. We're going to face temptation. Rebuke is necessary. We need that in our lives, both in how we give it as well as how we receive it. And then we see that forgiveness is essential. It is absolutely necessary to have forgiveness flowing from our lives, reflecting Christ's forgiveness in us. We can be confident that temptation will come our way. We will see this temptation in our lifetime, if you have not already, which I'm sure we all have. But we need to be careful, both with ourselves, that we don't sin, but also that we don't cause others to sin. We've seen that we are to rebuke our brothers and sisters in the church of Christ But we need to do this in love, which is definitely hard. It's one of the hardest things to do is doing things in love. We live in a very passive culture, which often tells us we aren't supposed to tell other people how to live. We aren't supposed to tell people what's right or wrong. But we're called to rebuke our brothers in sin. And we've now seen that we must forgive. Every time someone repents, every time someone comes to us saying they're sorry, we must forgive them when they repent. No matter how often, no matter how badly we are hurt, we must forgive. No matter how badly they've messed up, they're no worse than we are. So we've seen what we need to do, but why do we do these things? Why do we Brace ourselves for temptation. Why do we invest in not causing others to sin? Why do we rebuke our brother? And why do we forgive our brother? Let's look at Christ. Look at his example. He was no exception to this. He was tempted, just as we are, as Hebrews says. But he was without sin. Nor did he cause anyone else to sin in what he said or did. He rebuked those who fell in sin. But he did it with love. He found that perfect balance of speaking that truth, rebuking and loving them. And even greater than these two things, he provides the greatest forgiveness. He has forgiven us. No matter how much we mess up, he loved us so much that he was willing to go through one of the punishments, one of the few punishments worse than point of call in crucifixion. And he went there willingly for us to provide forgiveness. He didn't just passively say, oh yeah, I forgive you. He actively went there. He went there willingly so that we can be forgiven by God. No matter how much we mess up, no matter how badly we mess up, we can always turn back to God. We can always go there because of what Christ has done. He has provided us with this forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Ephesians 4.32 says to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. No one has hurt you. No one has sinned against you in a greater way than we have hurt God and sinned against God. We must forgive as he has forgiven us. And we forgive not just because we are commanded to, although that in and of itself should be reason enough, but we forgive because we too have been forgiven. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable, because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your warning to us, for the warning that we are, will face temptations in our lives. Thank you for showing us uh, the example of Christ and how we can stand up under temptations and how we can rebuke and love. And thank you for providing us with forgiveness, providing us with a way to be forgiven of our sins. I ask that you will give each of us the courage to be able to rebuke a brother who is in sin and the grace to be able to do that in love. I pray that we will continue forgiving regardless of how much we are hurt. That we will remember your sacrifice and your forgiveness for us. And remember that we must forgive for the sake of your son, for the sake of us being for, forgiven. And I pray that anyone here who, who's sitting here feeling like they are in need of this forgiveness God, I pray that you will work in their heart. You will pull at their heart and that they will seek this forgiveness, that they will cry out to you and ask you for this forgiveness in their lives and that they will realize that it is an offer, a free offer for them to come to you because of what's already been paid. In Jesus' name, amen.